Well, good morning, Northgate friends. It is so good to be with you. I've enjoyed being with you all weekend, and um, I got to tell you that I just came to love the men in your church this week, and you have got some great men that are a part of this church. I had so much fun with them, and, and I feel like I've been adopted into the, the Northgate family. I've gotten to be with you a few times now. In fact, San Francisco campus is joining us today, and we're so glad you're with us, and, and I was with them uh, six weeks ago, and it was so fun to be with you over at the San Francisco campus, and the online campus. We're grateful that you are with us today as well, and we just had some fun this weekend. And, and I got to tell you that one of the things that I learned about the men of this church is you have some men who have some good, healthy beards at this church. And I'm a guy who appreciates a good beard because it's hard work to grow one. You go through a stage where it gets itchy and it's uncomfortable, and then you start letting it grow out and it gets nasty, and then you have to like push through that. It takes perseverance and godliness to grow. A good beard. I remember when I first was growing out my beard, I, I have a bit of a baby face and I wanted to look a bit older as I was leading my church, so I decided like growing a beard would be helpful in that. And so I was growing out my beard and it had gotten like just mangly and big. And so people would come to me and they would like talk to me about it because I'm a bit awkward socially and so people are always trying to figure out like how do we, how do we interact with you? How do we talk to you? And so people would talk to me about my beard. And I remember this one Sunday before our church services, this older couple comes up to me, and they're talking to me a bit, and they're like, hey, how's it been having a beard? What's that been like for you? What, what are you surprised by? And so I was talking to them for a bit, and I said, you know, there's one thing that I didn't expect. I wasn't prepared for. I didn't know how much maintenance is involved in the beard. And I said this. I said, I didn't realize how much manscaping I was going to have to do. And the woman's eyes get real big, and she says, what? And I said, I didn't realize how much manscaping I was going to have to do. And she leans in real close, and she's a good 20, 30 years older than me. And she says, I don't think that means what you think that it means. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed it off like I knew what she was talking about. And I walked away, and I was like, I need to Google this. And I pulled out my phone, and I Google manscaping. I do not recommend doing that right now. The church internet filters will catch it. It is not appropriate to be looking at in church. I don't think that means what you think that it means. I have this conviction that sometimes when we talk about God, when we use that language of God, when you and I are, are using even the word God, that sometimes what I want to do is that I want to lean in real close and I want to say to you, I don't think that means what you think that it means. The way that we talk about God, the way that we understand God, we have some misconstrued pictures of Him. And, and we've gotten the ideas and pictures that we have of God from all kinds of different places. Some of us have just kind of been enculturated to some views of God. And so we think things like, well, if there is a God, well, then He must be incredibly powerful. And if He's incredibly powerful, then He must control everything that happens, everything good, everything bad, every little thing that happens. If He's all-powerful, He must control that. Or, or, or if there's a God, he must be then uh, uh, leading the path of everyone who's doing anything good. And, and if you have money, and if you have wealth, and if you have good things, that means that God is on your side. Or maybe, maybe we have been enculturated to think that God is like that dad that we don't know quite how to please. And we don't know if we're ever good enough for him, and we feel like we're constantly trying to measure up. Or, or maybe we have this picture that God is like this angry judge 
who's always out looking to see uh, when we do something wrong and to catch us in the act of doing something wrong. We have all these sort of pictures of God that if I were to ask you, well, where did that come from? Why do you think that about God? You, you might not even really know. You've just sort of inherited it. It's been enculturated in you. It's just sort of like seeped in in some sort of way. Some of us, some of us have been around the church a while. Maybe you've grown up in church and you've been around church for a while. And the, where we got our picture of God is actually from the Old Testament. Because we think that the way that you're supposed to read the Bible is the way that you read any other book, that you read it from left to right. But that's actually not the way that you're supposed to read the Bible. Is what will happen if we engage in that sort of way is that we develop a picture of God from the Old Testament, and then by the time that we get to Jesus, we've already constructed an image of what God is like, and we try to then impose that image onto Jesus. Or we read through the Old Testament, we get a picture of God that's like this angry God, and then by the time that we get to Jesus, we're like, oh, he softens him up a bit, and it's this like sort of Jekyll and Hyde God. What our tendency to do is, is to take a picture that we've already constructed of God and to try to make Jesus fit into that picture. But what the New Testament authors, the early church, as they were trying to make sense of who God is and what God is like, they actually advocated a completely different viewpoint. What the New Testament teaches is actually a different place where we start, a different starting point for how we construct and understand who God is and what God is like. A starting point that when we change what our starting point is, it actually shifts our perspective. Because when our perspective changes, it completely alters the way that we view and understand a thing, even if that thing itself hasn't changed. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like in, when you look up into the sky and you see the sun. In the morning, you see the sun and it's rising. And then throughout the day, we watch the sun as it moves throughout the sky. And in the evening, we watch the sun as it sets. And it appears to us as if the sun is moving. But that's not the case, is it? We know that that's not the case. We know that the sun actually isn't moving, but we're the ones who are moving. And so we gain a new perspective, and then we understand this thing that hasn't changed. We understand it in a new and different way. And I would actually argue that in order to understand God, what we have to understand is it's not that God changes. God does not change. But there comes this moment in the history of time that shifts our perspective, and everything then needs to be filtered through that shifting perspective. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to get a little bit theological with you in some ways. We're going to go through a few passages of Scripture, and we're going to go through them kind of quickly to understand how the early church, these early Christian leaders, after the experience of Jesus, are beginning to try to make sense of who God is and what God is like. And then we're going to try and understand, okay, then how does that filter down in a way that actually like makes sense for us and has something to do for us? So, let's dive into a few places in the New Testament together. We're going to start in a letter called Colossians. The Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, writes this letter, and here is what he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It'll be up on the screen here. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And so, what does God look like? Well, He's invisible. We can't see him. We can't fully comprehend him. He's intangible to us. But, this early Christian leader says, 
We can see Jesus, his son. He is the image of the invisible God. He shows us what God is like. He makes the invisible God visible. In fact, Jesus would say as much about himself. He would say it in a few different places, but here's one in John chapter 14. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus says, if you look at me, and if you see what I'm like, and if you see what I care about, and if you see my character, and you see the way that I treat people, and you see what I do, and you see the way that I do it, when you see all of those things, you have actually seen the Father, because anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But sometimes, sometimes what we will do, especially if we've been around church for a while, is we'll say, well, yeah, Jesus is God in the flesh, but he doesn't portray the fullness of God. He shows us a part of what God is like, but there are these other attributes of God, other characteristics of God that never show up in the life of Jesus, but, but they're just as true of God, and we've got to hold on to those, and maybe we even like, try to fit Jesus into those. But just a few sentences later, in that same first book that we looked at, Colossians, look at what Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 19. He says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How much of God dwells in Jesus? Yeah, it's not, it's not a trick question. It was really, really easy. All, all. It says it right, right, right there. All. All of God dwells in Jesus. So it's not that part of God dwells in Jesus and there's this part of him that we don't see that doesn't dwell in Jesus. It's all of him. In fact, even to make his point more, he pushes it a little bit further, says it again in a slightly different way in the next chapter in Colossians 2 verse 9. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's not that some of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. because No, all of it. And so all of us come in here with some kind of perspective, some kind of understanding of what God is like. And then what we do is we take Jesus and we try to fit him into this picture of God that we already have and that we've already constructed. And so even those... Those of us maybe who have been around the church for a while, those of you who are a little bit more astute, those of you who have engaged in the larger sort of scope of the Scriptures, what happens is you get into places like the Old Testament and there are discrepancies between things that seem like are being displayed by God and the character and nature of Jesus. And so we, we see these discrepancies and we're like, well, well, it's a part of God. It's not all of God. There are these pieces that are missing and this is the exact opposite of what the New Testament teaches. It's not that we have a preconceived idea of God that we fit Jesus into, even if that idea is created by the Old Testament. It's that the fullness of God, the completeness of God, all of it is found in Jesus. And so here's, here's where we push this idea just a little bit further theologically for those of you who are theology nerds and for the 99% of the rest of you just hang for a little bit through this. Can there be something that is true of God that is not true of Jesus? Can there be something that it's like there's characteristics of God that are not shown in Jesus? Can there be anything that is true of God that is not true of Jesus? No, because he's not a partial image of God. He's not a piece of God's character. In him, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In fact, the author of Hebrews in wrestling through this same idea, would write these words in Hebrews 1.3. Say it like this. The Son 
is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so what's, what's the glory of God? How is God's glory shown? It is displayed, it's made manifest in the person of Jesus, and the person of Jesus is the exact representation of his being, the exact representation. Is there anything that is true of God that is not true of Jesus? No. Has there ever been anything that is true of God? Like, did God ever display characteristics at one time, but, but like, now there's Jesus, and now he's sort of different. Like, does that happen? No. God doesn't change. What does change is our perspective. And so Jesus is the exact representation of God, which leads me to say this, that God always looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then the first place we look, the first place where we start, the place that becomes the the sort of starting point, the grounding of it all is that we always look at Jesus because God always looks like Jesus. And so the way that we make sense of God and who God is and what God is like and what God cares about is that we always start with Jesus. There comes this point in time in the history of the world when Jesus shows up and our perspective shifts. It's like the sun hasn't changed what it's doing, but our perspective of it has changed. And so now we understand it more fully. We look at it now with this new knowledge, and we understand this thing that we understood before. We understand it now better because we understand it differently. And what this means is that Christian theology always moves from Jesus to God, and not from what you think you know and understand about God to Jesus. And this, by the way, is one of the scandals of Christianity because that phrase, Jesus is God, is one of the most fundamental truths of the Scriptures. And anything that I believe or perpetuate or teach or tell others that makes Jesus out to not be the exact representation of God's character, that it's got to be condemned as sub-biblical. In fact, one of my favorite authors, a, a priest and uh, an author named Brennan Manning, would write it this way. He says this in his book, Ruthless Trust. He says, all of our prevailing images and understandings of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. If we do not allow Jesus to change our image of God, then we cannot profess him as Lord. I mean, this idea was so significant, so radical, so earth-shattering that this is a part of the reason that Jesus would be killed. This is a part of the reason that the Apostle Paul would be beaten and would be thrown in prison because here's what they were doing. They were redefining God, and they were redefining God around Jesus. And that that begins to blow up all kinds of ways that we see God. This fundamental truth has all kinds of implications. It it works its way with these tentacles into all kinds of crevices. It has implications on the church. It has implications on my theology, uh, on what I understand God to be like, on the way that I read the Scriptures, understand the Scriptures, engage in the Old Testament, on how I understand how God interacts with me. It has implications on all of those sorts of things. And so, what I want to do is I want to, I want to spend just a few minutes with you kind of delving into one like narrow slice of if this is true, if God always looks like Jesus, if this is what the early Christian leaders were trying to help us to understand this fundamental and radical shift in the nature and character of how we understand God, not that God has changed, but our perspective of him has because of Jesus, 
then, then like, here's this one area that, like, let me show you how this works itself out. Let me, let me use these to do it a bit. Now, what I had always been told growing up is that what the story of the scriptures are is that man was created to be in relationship with God. And that because of our sin, that we turned our backs on God. And that God in his holiness, his holiness can't come into contact with sin. And so as a result of that, God is so repulsed by our sin that what he has to do is he has to turn his back on us, that his holiness demands it. And then what Jesus does is Jesus shows up, and because Jesus shows up and because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that what would happen is that would enable God to then be able to turn back towards us in his holiness, which would then hopefully eventually enable us to turn back towards him. My guess is if you've been around the church for a while, you have heard a story similar to that. But I would actually argue that this is not the story that's told in the scriptures. And especially if Jesus is a starting point for your picture of God, then it's not the way that God interacts with sin. I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. Is there ever an instance, can you ever point to one time where Jesus is so repulsed by sin that he has to turn his back on someone? Is there ever any instance where that's the case? Is Jesus in his holiness so offended by sin that he can't be near it, that he has to turn away from it, that he has to, to, to escape it? If God always looks like Jesus, then we need to see how does this play itself out. So there's this woman. She's a Samaritan woman. And she's gone through relationship after relationship after relationship because she's trying to find meaning and purpose in those relationships. And so she's been through marriage after marriage after marriage, married and divorced five times, and she's, she's essentially given up on the whole idea of marriage. And so now she's, she's living with a man. And what Jesus does is Jesus comes to her and he meets her at a well. And he looks at her and he says, I know that you are thirsty. I know that even though you keep drawing water from that well, that it hasn't satisfied your soul. And I have the water of life that can set you free. And so this woman, this woman believes and she runs into town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come meet the Messiah. There's this other man and he's well off. He's trusted in his riches for significance. And so he's rich and he's powerful and he's in a position of power and influence. But the reason that he's in a position of power and influence is because he's chosen to collude with the occupying forces of Rome. Now, now he's actually Jewish himself, but he's chosen not to align himself with his people, the Jewish people, but instead to align himself with the occupying force of Rome. And not only that, he's a tax collector, but he's not just any tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. And so he's been ostracized by his people. The people have turned their backs on him. He has money, he has power, but he's short on friends. And Jesus comes to him one day, and he looks up, And he sees him in a tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I must go to your house today and I must eat with you. And so Jesus goes into the home of this wicked, sinful man to dine with him. And it's in the midst of that meal that Zacchaeus says, I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor and anybody that I've cheated, I'm going to repay them four times over And so Jesus then says to this man, salvation today has come to this man's house because he too is a son of Abraham. 
there's this woman, and she's been caught in adultery. And the Pharisees, they're glad to catch somebody in this act because they want to bring her to Jesus so that they can test him. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. And in the Bible, what the Bible tells us to do is that Moses said you should stone such women. And so what do you say, Jesus? Should we follow what Moses tells us to do or not? And at first, Jesus doesn't say a thing. What he does is he kneels down and he begins writing in the dust. And and people have been trying for centuries to figure out, like, what is it that he wrote there in the dirt? But I kind of think that's the whole point. You'll never know. It's just in the dust for a moment and then later it's gone. Jesus never left us any written record because his life is the word. Jesus is what God had to say. And so what did God say? Jesus turned to those people who were holding the stones ready to do what the Bible commanded them to do. And he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. One by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. And Jesus then turns to the woman. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Is there anyone here to condemn you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's this man. He's a Gentile. He's been so captured by darkness that he has what's been described as a legion of demons. Not one or two demons in him, but a whole legion of demons. And he's regressed into this animal-like state. He no longer wears clothes, and he cries, and he howls day and night. Nobody dares to come near him because they live in terror of this madman who lives out in the tombs. And so they've given up on him. He is just a lost cause But what Jesus does is Jesus gets in a boat and he sails across the Sea of Galilee to go to this man. And he comes to him and he says, I am not afraid of you. And I don't reject you. And I haven't given up on you. In fact, I speak to the demons who have possessed you and I say to them, come out of him. And now people see this man and he's changed, he's transformed, he's clothed and he's in his right mind and he's sitting with Jesus I mean, does Jesus ever look at a person and say, oh, this person is so sinful, I can't be near you. This person, what you have done is so wrong, I've got to turn my back on you. I am so pure that I can't come into contact with this. Does Jesus ever do that? Is that ever true of Jesus? Do you ever see Him ever doing anything like that in the Gospels? Instead, instead, what we see happening is it's us. It's us who are doing this. And every time we do this, we say, you don't know how bad I have been. And every time we do that, he chases after you. And you say, but you don't know about the wake of broken relationships that I've left behind me. And every time we do that, he pursues you. But you don't know about the shame and the guilt that I live with. The way, the weight is sitting on my shoulders because of what I know is true of me. And in the midst of that, he pursues you. But you don't know about the secret that I'm holding that not even my spouse 
knows about that. And even in the midst of that, he pursues you. And every time we do this, he pursues you. Every time you turn your back, he pursues you. He pursues you. He pursues you. It's one why, why one author would famously say that he is the hound of heaven. Because every time you turn your back, he is not turning his back on you. Every time you turn away from him, he doesn't turn away from you. What you have done does not repulse him. Instead, it causes him to chase after you and to turn towards you. And every time we turn away, every time we turn away, he keeps chasing after you. He does not turn his back on you because this God always looks like Jesus. And Jesus never turns his back on you. God... God always looks like Jesus. And I want to tell you today that if you have any picture of God that you came in here with, regardless of where you got it from, if you have any picture of God that you've come in here today with that looks different than that, where you think God acts differently towards you, where you think God has a different posture than that towards you, where you think God thinks differently than that towards you, then what I want to do is I want to lean in real close to you right now, and I just want to tell you this. I don't think that means what you think that it means. Today, I want you to know, my Northgate friends, that God, the God who always looks like Jesus, he pursues you, he pursues you, he pursues you. And he never turns his back on you. And so, some of you are here today, and you're new. You're new to the whole idea of faith. Maybe, maybe even like you grew up in the church, and you have some just wrong, broken pictures of God, and it's caused you to walk away from the church, and you're kind of like dipping your toes back in faith. You're checking things out. You're trying to figure things out. If that's where you're at today, and you, you want to understand God more, you want to pursue Jesus, maybe you're trying to figure those things out. You're trying to figure out, how do I take first steps of faith? Here's what I want to encourage you to do, is that out in the lobby, both here in Benicia, and then we've got these also at the San Francisco campus, there's this journal. It's called This Changes Everything. And it's a personal journal for you. It's guided, and it takes you through, going through several days of discovering for yourself who is this God, who is this Jesus, and what does it mean to pursue him and to walk with him, and what does faith actually look like. We would love to give this to you for free, and so you can pick that up outside on your way out today. There's also, maybe you came here today with some stuff going on in your life. Maybe, maybe you showed up here today and there's some things that are weighing heavy on you that, that are just hard that you're going through. And we have prayer partners here. And, and prayer partners at our San Francisco campus as well. And they would love to pray with you after service. I hope that you'll seek one of them out. Here's what I want to ask you to do is as we close out our time together today, friends, I want to ask you if you would stand up at both of our campuses. At the San Francisco campus, we're going to throw it over to your team there, and Kayla's going to close out the service over there. But for us here in Venetia and online, I want to ask you if you would hold out your hands in this posture of receiving. And would you just receive this blessing? May you, my Northgate friends, may you know the God who always looks like Jesus. 
May you condemn and reject any picture of God that makes him out to be somebody who turns away from you or somebody who can't stand to be near you. May you recognize that in every place in your life, in every circumstance, in every way, in every single crevice of your life that God has not turned his back on you. And may you know that he pursues you and pursues you and pursues you. May you know that to be true deep down in your bones. And may you live in that as you go from here today. Grace and peace to you, Northgate. Have a great day.